right. Well, before I begin this morning, I just wanted to take a moment to say uh, thank you to everyone who uh, took the time last month to complete the survey that was available um, prior to this sermon series. And so if you took the survey, then you know that the sermon series has been the product of research and writing that I've been doing for the last two years towards my Doctor of Ministry degree. And I still have a year to go and will be writing the remaining chapters this fall. <laughs> Please, Lord. Uh, regarding the data that's been collected from the surveys and, um, and some additional focus groups that will be taking place this summer. Uh, speaking of surveys, though, uh, beginning today, there is now a post-assessment survey. So the after the sermon series uh, survey is available for you to take, and I would really appreciate your help in taking this survey. If you took the survey before the sermon series began, please take it again. If you did not take the survey before, it doesn't matter. You can take it now. Uh, the surveys have all been 100% anonymous, so I won't know if you took it before or after or and after or just before or just after. I don't know who took it. So I don't know if you took it once or both times, and, and so you're welcome to take it both times or just this once. Uh, so I'll just try and confuse everybody. But the point is, anybody is able, if you're over 18, to take the survey. The QR code that will take you to the survey is on the signs at the information desk. It's on the screens um, throughout the building, or you can request the hard copy survey at the desk um, as well. But again, I just wanted to take a second to say how very thankful that I am for all of you who took the time to help me with those surveys. It means so much to me um, because it's anonymous. There's no way for me to thank you individually, and so just please accept this blanket general thank you. Um, obviously, the topic is deeply personal to to me, and I've spent a great deal of time on this. I never set out to preach a series of sermons to single people. It was never the plan, and I hope what you've learned these last five weeks was truth from God's word that was applicational to you, whether you were single or married, and I hope that you've come to recognize what singleness has to teach the church uh, in the same way that most of us could quickly and easily identify what marriage has to teach us about God. So with all of that said, let's get all of that out of the way now, uh, and let's turn to the Word of God. I'll also say, I think I got a summer cold from going from the extreme heat one night for five nights, actually, to the air conditioning the next day. So if I sound funny, my apologies. Okay, now we're for real turning to the Word of God. Whose wife is she? It's one of the more interesting and ridiculous questions that is found in the Bible. It's a question I've been asked. Now, who are you, who are you here with? Now, now, who do you, now, who do you belong to, right? Pastor Brittany and I get these questions at uh, meetings of pastors. Now, whose wife are you, right? Uh, we're actually here as, uh, as pastors. Huh. Well, that is interesting, right? And you just see the confusion on their faces as if the Assemblies of God has not been ordaining women for ministry since it began in 1914. But that's a different sermon and one the SBC is still not preaching today. So, <clears throat> just had to get that in there. Okay, so whose wife is she? was the question that was originally asked by the Sadducees to Jesus a very long time ago. Marriage, singleness, relationships, both here and in the future, have long been a thing of curiosity. 
And we're more familiar with the Pharisees, who were the legalistic folks of Jesus' day, intent on ensuring that the law of Moses was followed without someone truly understanding, uh, without sometimes, rather, without sometimes truly understanding the purpose of the law of Moses. The Sadducees were a similar group, but they were mostly concerned with matters connected to the temple. And one huge difference between the two groups and the one of most importance to, boy, I'm having a hard time today. The one of most importance to us this morning was their beliefs regarding a future resurrection from the dead. The Pharisees believed in the resurrection of the dead, and the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection. And my favorite Sunday school joke must be told here every time, and that is why they were sad, you see. Right? There you go. In Matthew 22, the Sadducees come to Jesus with an absurd story. They could have asked their question about the resurrection without this silliness, but because of their silliness, everyone in the place, including Jesus, recognized the trap that they were laying. And if you remember a few weeks ago, Pastor Brian preached on the story of Ruth, and he explained then about the kinsman redeemer. The idea is from Deuteronomy 25, and it went like this. If a man died without leaving an heir, then his brother should marry the dead brother's wife and have a child who could inherit the land of the dead man and thereby continue to pass on the blessings of God that were tied to the land. Now remember, we've been saying for weeks that children were the way to pass on blessing and the marriage covenant is God's prescribed way for this union to occur and be blessed. So children in death are how one left a legacy and how they passed on their blessings tied to the land, the land which God had given his people. So if there is no heir, there is no legacy. So the kinsman redeemer, or in legal terms, the Leverite marriage, was God's contingency plan. And the Sadducee story is about a family with seven brothers. The first brother married and died without any children, and so the next brother married the woman and died, and so on and so forth, with all seven brothers marrying the same woman. And finally, the woman died too, exhausted as she was from having gotten involved with this family in the first place. <laughs> just kidding, that line is not in the scripture. I just, I added that one, but... Now then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be, right? Whose wife is she of the seven, since all of them were married to her? And it seemed like a good question, except that it's not. And once again, Jesus uses it for his favorite segment, Adventures in Missing the Point. They have actually asked a ridiculous question that has no logical answer. You see, if Jesus were to actually answer this and, and answer which brother is the husband, he would basically be saying that polygamous relationships were okay. And that's against the law of Moses. But the Sadducees know they know Jesus isn't going to speak in favor of sexual relationships that are outside of one man and one woman and covenant marriage. So they aren't really looking for an answer to the question about whose wife this woman is. They knew, even in Jesus' day, this was a dumb question. What they really want is for Jesus to be forced into saying, well, guys, you got me there. There is no resurrection of the dead, so that's why I can't answer you. Because they want Jesus to side with them on this issue because it's their big political issue of the day. It's what ultimately separates them from the Pharisees. Except the Sadducees were trying to get Jesus to weigh in on an issue that was based on the rules of their day, 
without understanding that through Jesus, the age to come would be remade in an entirely new and different way. What they failed to understand here is that heaven doesn't play by the rules of earth. So Jesus replied, well, you're in error because you don't know the scriptures or the power of God. And at the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. So here are some errors of the Sadducees that we can't afford to make. Number one, they didn't know the scripture. And we have to know the story of the scripture and not just ideas that have been based on the Bible. So I read a whole thread on Facebook the other day uh, with person after person quoting that great verse where Jesus said to come as you are to him, right? They, they kept saying that. You know, Jesus said, just come just as you are, just as you are, just come to him. And that's lovely, right? I mean, that's nice. Except that that's not a verse. Um, that's not a quote. Um, yeah, I mean, it's just, it, Jesus didn't say that exact thing, right? And lots of people were agreeing with that, and then they were going against it. But they're having an argument here on something that is not entirely what Jesus said. I mean, is it true? Uh, yeah, it, it probably, yeah, it is, yeah. Does it need a bit more explanation? Also true. Is that idea derived from Scripture? Yeah. I mean, Jesus did say that all who are weary and heavy laden come to him and, and he will give you rest. Isaiah said, all who are thirsty come to me and drink from the waters of life. Uh, the, let's see, whoever will call on the name of the Lord, right? And there's no, nobody qualified what this whoever should look like, so maybe they were coming just as they are. There's multiple examples in the scripture of Jesus meeting with individuals where it seems like they came just as they are, right? So we can get there for sure. We can take scripture and make that point. You can use all of those verses to explain the sentiment. But you know what that really goes back to, this idea of come just as you are? It's a hymn written in 1835 by Charlotte Elliott and made popular during Billy Graham revivals of the last century. Just as I am, without one plea, a lamb of God, I come, I come, right? There's nothing wrong with this idea, but if we don't actually know what the scriptures say, that's what the temptation is. Well, you know, Jesus said, did he? Where at? Well, the Bible says, does it? Can you point me to a scripture and a verse, or a chapter and a verse? Well, you know how the, the good book, what now? This is the word of God. It's living and active, and we have to know what the Bible actually says. Otherwise, we are content to simply spout ideas compiled from the Bible without actually knowing the full story. And the Sadducees didn't know what the scripture said about the age to come. They were concerned only about this life because, you see, without a belief in the resurrection, there is no belief in heaven. And without a belief in heaven, then all you care about is the here and the now. The Sadducees were a political group, and politics is life when you don't believe in the resurrection and the age to come. The Apostle Paul would later say, if we're concerned only about this life, we will be most miserable because this life is not all that there is we were not made for this life only there is an age to come and the age to come is what revelation describes as the new heaven and the new earth when the old passes away and jesus dries every tear from our eyes and we dwell forever with god 
but too few of us live in light of eternity. We make our choices based on what will make us happy here and now. Well, what will set us up well for health and wealth in a few years, but we fail to consider what type of treasures that we're storing up for all of eternity. And the scripture makes clear there is an age to come, a future day where we will dwell with Christ for eternity. But do we know the scripture well enough to live in light of that truth? Well, the second error, error of the Sadducees was that they didn't know the power of God. They didn't even realize who it was that they were speaking with that day. The Son of God was standing right in front of them, and they had no knowledge that soon Jesus would die and be resurrected to life in three days, becoming the first fruits of all who have believed in his name and who will then be raised to new life. They didn't know that Jesus has the power to remake all things or that Jesus had already begun to reimagine the new family of God. Number three, the Sadducees didn't know the purpose of marriage. See, the Sadducees didn't get that marriage was needed on earth. First of all, marriage is needed on earth because only through marriage did God intend for children to enter the world. So how else would the world continue, right? If this is the way that God intends for us to continue the world, then, uh, yeah, without marriage, then the world kind of stops, right? So it's kind of important. And secondly, because marriage was communicating a message of how God loved his people and Christ loved his church. And that's what we talked about two weeks ago, the week before the storm. Does it feel like that was a whole week? It feels like seven years passed in the last five days, but anyhow. But that's what we, were, what we talked about then. And that's the metaphor that we need on earth, but not in heaven. On earth, we need a constant reminder of the way Christ loves his church. On earth, we right now, we need a picture to look at to see the love of Christ reflected in the way a husband cares for the needs of his wife and the way a, the way a wife desires only her husband. Right now, we need to attend weddings and be reminded that there is a huge wedding ahead for all of us who love Jesus when we, the bride, will be forever united to the bridegroom, Jesus. We need marriage on earth. But in heaven, the metaphor is over. The picture is complete. The marriage between Christ and the church will have taken place. In heaven, marriage will not be needed because it will have served its purpose. We won't need marriage pointing us towards the return of the bridegroom. He's already returned. He already came back for us, and we've already had the wedding. So the Sadducees were asking the wrong question. She won't be anyone's wife in the resurrection. The Sadducees' lack of understanding of marriage also shows that they didn't have a theology of singleness. They didn't understand the purpose of singleness because it's interconnected with marriage in the resurrection. I mentioned two weeks ago, and I want to reiterate again today, the purpose of Christian celibate singleness and the portrait that it paints. Number one, it shows us the sufficiency of Christ in all things. And secondly, it shows us that this life is not all there is. The single life portrays the sufficiency of Christ to meet every need that we have, while at the same time pointing us forward to the day in the future, the day when we'll be in heaven with our Savior Jesus and no longer have any need at all. 
This is the day in heaven, in the age to come, when the sufficiency of Christ will be completely and fully known by every individual person. Those who were married on earth, those who were single in this life, we will all know that Christ is sufficient in every way. Christ will be all that we need. Christ will be in all that we have. We won't need the sun or the moon or the stars because the glory of God and the Lamb will give us light. We won't need seasons because the trees will bear fruit month after month. We won't need marriage to point us to the great wedding and the wedding feast of the Lamb because it will have already occurred. Literally everything will change and be changed because Jesus will be all that we need and will provide for anything and everything we could even think about. And so the single life keeps us pointed towards the future day and its existence. The single life keeps the church living in light of eternity and the truth that there is still more to come, a life forever lived in the presence of the Lord. And with this in mind, the Sadducees would know the woman wouldn't be anyone's wife because she would be in the presence of Jesus. She would be resurrected to new life, living every day in a place where Christ is sufficient for all things, where the blessings that could have only come from the child she never had would now be fully realized. The need she had for protection and safety, the need she had for purpose and fulfillment, for shelter and companionship and relationship would all be found totally, completely, and forever in Jesus. Well, number four, the Sadducees didn't know their own purpose in serving God. I mean, remember, Jesus has just said to them that people won't marry or be given in marriage because they'll be like the angels in heaven. Now, to be clear, Jesus did not say they'll become angels, nor did he say that people who aren't married are angelic, although I don't know why he couldn't have added that because it feels accurate, but... Um, but it's not. Uh, and so, over the years, there's been some terrible theology built off of this verse, specifically about guardian angels being people who have already died who look after you. That somehow you'll die, you'll go to heaven, and you'll become an angel, and then you'll be looking, will become like the angels, and will be looking out for everyone else on earth. And that's not at all what this verse is saying. Because remember, the response Jesus is giving is in regards to who the woman would be married to in heaven. And he's saying, we'll be like the angels in that the angels don't get married. And here's one big answer for why angels don't need to get married. Because the angels don't die. So therefore, they don't need to multiply themselves. There's no mandate for angels to fill the earth. They don't live on earth. There's no need for angels to pass on blessing to a new generation. There isn't a new generation of angels. They don't die. They don't need to leave a lasting legacy. They don't need to build a dynasty of those who will serve. They just will serve for all of eternity. And they don't need to populate heaven either because that's what the church will do. And that's why it's on us to make disciples, to multiply ourselves in those we introduce to Jesus, those we teach to follow him, those we send out to go and to make more disciples. Because heaven gets bigger each time a person chooses to follow Jesus and does so sincerely and wholeheartedly. That's how heaven gets bigger and not when you hear a bell ring and angels get their wings, right? Right? 
That's not scripture. That's error number one. That's a movie. But the angels do have a purpose. They do have a role to play. Paula Gooder says that God in heaven is surrounded by hosts and hosts of angels to whom he gives tasks and from whom he receives advice, whose role is to serve God, to worship him, and to help him carry out his tasks as divine king and judge. Sadducees had gotten distracted, and they had forgotten their role as God's people was always to serve and to worship God, the true king. And sometimes the church can forget her purpose. Sometimes we can get distracted in what it is that we're truly supposed to be about. And we can become quite the community event holder place center. We can become something that we were never intended to be. But we are supposed to be about the Father's business. We're supposed to be making disciples. Sometimes we can forget and we think that the church has become a matchmaking service. So we do our best to marry everyone off and ensure everyone has a spouse. But again, the purpose of the church is to make disciples. And again, I say that making more disciples of Jesus is how we populate heaven. Because this is what we're called to do. Finding a spouse in church is a bonus. It is a gift on top of a gift, but it is not the purpose of the church. When we put anything above making disciples, then we have messed up somehow the priorities of the church. The purpose of the church always and foremost is to make disciples. That's the purpose. Okay, I was just checking because for a second there I thought just Jeff and Dave were out with me. Okay, the purpose of the church. So Jesus said, so Jesus, I just, hold on. So just before Jesus is ascended into heaven, right? Just before he looks at all the disciples and he says, okay, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And so now therefore go into all the world and make disciples, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And now I will be with you forever and ever and ever. And then another place it records that he also then said, so here's what I want you to do. I want you to go back to Jerusalem right now and I want you to wait. Before you go fulfill that commission, I want you to wait. Just hold on for one second because there's power that's coming. And when that power is come when the Holy Spirit has descended and you have received the power to do so then I want you to go and I want you to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and then in Judea and then in Samaria and then to the ends of the earth to be clear that was the commission that Jesus gave to the church and it has not changed so again I say here is the top priority of the church it is to make disciples okay I just oh boy I was just checking there okay Number five, the error of the Sadducees was that they didn't know their relationship to the Father. Luke records for us the same conversation between Jesus and the Sadducees, but he adds one extra point. They're God's children since they are children of the resurrection. And those in heaven are those, Luke says, are considered worthy of taking part in that age and in the resurrection from the dead. And the question that started all of this was whose wife will she be? Christopher Young says, a wife is first a daughter of God. Being a wife is of this world only, while being a child of God is eternal. The most important relationship, the most important identity we all have is with God as our Father. And that's why that question, now who are you here with? Who do you belong to? Well, the answer is always, I belong to God, right? That's first and foremost how we identify that relationship, then, as a child of the Father God, informs every other relationship that we have within the church. 
God, having adopted into his family those led by the Spirit to be his sons and daughters are now co-heirs with Christ. And this means the primary identifier of those members of God's family is that of sister and brother. Those of us who, in the church, who love Jesus, we're brothers and sisters. That's what all of us are. This is the language Jesus uses of all of those who do God's will. In the book of Mark, Jesus is sitting in a circle with a crowd of people when his mother, Mary, and his brothers arrive to see him. And someone whispers to Jesus, hey, your family, they're here to see you. And Jesus looks at the people around him and he says, but here are my mother and brothers. Because who, excuse me, whoever does God's will <clears throat> is my brother and sister and mother. He's not neglecting his family or even rejecting his family so much as he is expanding the, his family by redefining who his brothers and sisters are. And if we're God's children, then that makes all of us related through Jesus. And this also means then, if we're all co-heirs with Jesus and we're all brothers and sisters of Jesus, that we're all children then of God, then that means then, to be clear, that if we're brothers and sisters of Jesus, then that makes all of us brothers and sisters with God as our Father. And if we truly believe that, then it impacts the way that we treat each other. It impacts the way that we speak to each other and about each other. It means we fight for each other, not with each other. We pray for each other. We encourage each other. We believe the best about each other. And in recent years, we've stopped a long-held church practice to call everyone brother and sister, right? When I was a kid, everyone was sister you know, Sister Dipley, Brother Walker, Brother White, right? Brother McGuire, right? Everybody is, yeah, that's how we did that, right? When I went to Bible college, all of our professors were that as well. It was all, you know, Brother Crabtree, Sister Jenkins. This is how this all went, right? I was never really sure what age you had to be to start being called that. Um, and I was pretty sure it was gonna, you had to be really old for that. That's the way that that felt, right? But Given that two weeks ago I mentioned I have recently discovered that I am middle-aged, I fear that this is the age for that to begin. So I'm not really recommending that we bring that back. But what I am suggesting, though, is that when we did that, though, when we referred to everybody that way, right? When we talked about Sister Walls and Sister Lar and Brother Lar. Um, it kept the most important relationship between each of us front and center. Because it's harder to talk bad about a person you just addressed as your sister or brother, right? I mean, I don't know, um, Brian, if you heard about Brother Walker, but I just wanted to tell you, right? You catch yourself immediately. I'm talking about my brother. And here's something else that I have learned. My sister, my real sister, my actual sister, my biological sister, we can have some disagreements all the live long day, but I'll just tell you, don't talk to me about my sister, right? I will hurt you, right? I, you know, we will have words because we know that we respect each other and that we love each other, but don't be talking to me about my sister, right? But that's the way that we should be in the church as well because we're brother and we're sister 
and we stopped regularly and consistently reminding ourselves that we were family, and now we divide ourselves by colors like blue and red, or by news channels we watch, or we make assumptions about those people over there or those people on the other side, and we've made enemies of people who are actually our brothers and sisters. We forgot that we were related and connected, and it suddenly became okay to gossip about your sister and say rude things about your brother. And it's possible that we've made the error of the Sadducees and forgotten our relationship to the Father. Church family is so important, and I am so thankful for mine, because a healthy, diverse, intergenerational church is one who sees their relationships to each other in light of their relationship to the same Father God, the same Christ over them all, and the same Holy Spirit living in each of them. And what results when we are truly that type of a family, when we are an intergenerational group of people, what results is that single people find community and God sits them into families. What results is that young people find parents and grandparents. What results is that married people find friendships. What results then is that people find each other and establish a new family of spiritual brothers and sisters and parents. The importance of community and family within the church cannot be overstated. Jesus can be seen in the Bible forming a community and redefining what family looks like we were made for community and we were made to be in relationship with other people if humankind is made in the image and likeness of God then the need to exist within community shall be reflected in all people and single persons within the church exhibit this inherent need to exist and live in community and the community to, to be found looks like a family formed not with biological ties but with spiritual ones and brothers and sisters, because we're all co-heirs with Christ, it is this spiritual fa family <clears throat> which creates relational dynamics that, relast, that last into eternity. Lastly, the last error then that the Sadducees made was that they didn't know the eternal life that was on offer. The end of the conversation with the Sadducees goes like this. But about the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what God said to you? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, for he is not the God of the dead, but of the living. In other words, God didn't say, I was the God of Abraham when he was alive. No, no. God is still currently the God of Abraham because to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord where we will be more alive than we've ever been before. Abundant life here in this age and eternal life in the age to come, that's what is meant when Jesus declares that he is the way to the Father, he is the truth of the word, and he is the life. He is the God of the living. And once again, though, this life is not all there is. So we live in light of eternity where life Life goes on forever and ever and ever without end. So these are the errors that the Sadducees made in interpreting the made-up story about the woman who married seven brothers. They didn't know the scriptures. They didn't know the power of God. They didn't know the purpose of marriage and singleness or even their own purpose. They didn't know the relationship they could have with the Father or the offer of eternal life. But we do, or at least we can. We can know God as our Father by accepting his Son. Through Jesus, we can have abundant life here and eternal life after that. 
And I hope that through this series, you've come to know and could correct some of the other errors of the Sadducees if you find that you have made them yourself. Because here is what I want you to take away from this sermon series. The Bible is the authority for our lives, and therefore, we must know what it says. I want you to know that Jesus came to fulfill all the law and the prophets, and through his death on the cross, he did just that. I want you to know that there are no exclusions, that anyone who calls upon the Lord and obeys his commands is brought into the new kingdom that Jesus has established, even people like the eunuch. I want you to know that Jesus affirmed both marriage and singleness and requires fidelity and purity within each of them. I want you to know that in order to tell the story of scripture, we need marriage showing us the love of Christ for his church and we need singleness showing us the sufficiency of Christ. I want you to know that singleness reminds the church that this life is not all there is and it bears witness to the age to come. But mostly what I hope you take away from this sermon series is that we need each other. We need each other in this church. Single people and married people and kids and middle-aged people, retired folks and teenagers, 20-somethings and 90-somethings, we need all of us here as a church family bearing each other's burdens, caring for each other, remaining faithful to the word of God and to the mission of the church to make more disciples. We need in this church married couples staying faithful to the covenant they've made to God and each other. We need singles living pure lives while testifying to the sufficiency and faithfulness of Jesus to them. We need each other to hold us accountable to keep our eyes on Jesus no matter what comes because we are a family and we are a community of folks who have all been saved by grace. And when Jesus ascended to heaven, he didn't leave behind a church building or a massive congregation. He left the community of brothers and sisters he'd formed. And that's who we are. We are Carbondale. We are a place of healing, hope, laughter, and peace to all who walk through our doors. And I am the single witness who can testify to this. And I pray we will continue to be for generations of people, single and married, yet to come. Will you bow your heads this morning? Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, that we are a family. And Lord, sometimes families have disagreements. Sometimes we don't always see eye to eye. Sometimes there's things that we have to go back and apologize for. I didn't mean to say that. I didn't mean to say it like that. But we do, because we're family, and we, we go back and we apologize. We stand with each other. We celebrate the highs, and we mourn with the lows. We have members of our family this morning that are hurting, that have, have experienced loss. We have members of our family that are experiencing really great and incredible things, new opportunities, 
new experiences. And this is what we do as a family. We cheer each other on. So I pray, God, that you would that you would just continue, Lord, to bring our hearts together. That we would all collectively have the mind of Christ. And the heart, Lord, to continue to love one another and to bear one another's burdens. And I pray, Lord, that if anyone has some sort of trouble between their brother and sister, that we would do what the word of God instructs us to do, to go to each other. To just go fix it. To just go fix it. Because Pastor Brian is convinced that some of you are angry about casserole dishes. It's his favorite go-to example. I don't want to miss out on heaven because I got angry that somebody took my favorite casserole dish and broke it on accident. we got important stuff to do like showing the world who Jesus is and what he comes to do and the good news that he brings so Jesus help us Lord help us to love one another deeply help us to love one another well help us to love each other as family to support each other and to care one for another Lord, we love you, and we thank you that you saved even us, that your grace extends even to us. And Lord, would you send us out now to continue to go and to make more disciples and to populate heaven, because one day we're going to spend eternity there with each other and with you. And I pray, Lord, that it's crowded with people that will say, oh, I remember that church in West Tulsa. That's where I came to know the love of Jesus. That's where God set me into a family. That's where I first found out what it was to have family and to have people that cared about me and cheered me on and encouraged me and saw the call of God. Help us, Jesus. Help us, Lord. Help us, Lord, to fulfill the mission of the church and to love each other. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Will you stand this morning? Thanks again for being here today. Uh, again, if you want to take the survey, those QR codes are out there on the information desk. I hope you're staying around for Sunday school. We will see you again this Wednesday or next Sunday. Be blessed today as you go.